Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. So it's not a matter of you're a warm person, you're a cold person, but let's make sure you have the experience of authentic conversation. A few months ago, I was reading the Columbia University alumni magazine and came across a story about a doctor, a professor by the name of Rita Sharon. The article caught my eye because she was using storytelling to heal patients. Not just using storytelling, you know, but integrating those stories that each of us has within us as a human being as part of her diagnosis and her treatment of patients. It was like a light bulb went off for me probably reminiscent of the same experience that Dr. Sharon had when she first started to realize the power of narrative, the power of stories. You know, when an idea sounds so commonsensical, except you discover no one's ever done it before or barely even thought about it before, and you say, wow, that's something. And then it happens. And that turns out to be Dr. Sharon's story. Rita Sharon created, that's really the right word for it. She created the field of narrative medicine. There are now programs on narrative medicine, not only at Columbia University, but at many other universities around the world. The basic premise of narrative medicine is that what a patient says, how they describe their illness, it's really like a story they're telling you. It's like a story you might find in a novel, has a plot, has characters, there are metaphors and there are themes, and how the patient tells her story and what she chooses to emphasize. When there's gaps and silences, all of these things can be read in the same way that Each of us reads a novel or a play or another literary work. Here's what's really interesting. It turns out there's an entire body of knowledge, expertise of these techniques that you can use to analyze in a really deep and even precise manner what people are saying and what it means for them and for their care. All it takes is for the physician to sit still and listen. So, you know, I started reading about this and the connections to other things I've been thinking about over the years was really kind of stunning. You know, I run a variety of executive education groups at Dartmouth College and uh, then come in for various leadership training. And one of the experiences that we've done is at the Hood Museum here at Dartmouth campus, and we call it Learning to Look. Led by a docent, the executives sit down in front of uh, painting and they talk about what they see. Can you imagine that? They talk about what they see and it turns out some people see things that others never saw at all. And they have this conversation and they talk about what the story of the painting means to them and how they think about it themselves. The contrast between what they're thinking before they start this experience, which isn't all that much, and their reaction, an overwhelming feeling when they've completed this exercise could not be more different. They are overwhelmed by this experience and they can't stop talking about it. It's really hard to imagine, right? These hard-bitten executives and they come in and you tell them, yeah, stare at this painting, tell me what you see, tell me why you think it's there, what do you notice? And it takes, you know, not very long and get into a really deep, amazing discussion and people begin to realize, wow, there's a lot I'm not looking at. There's a lot I'm not paying attention to and it'd be really, really useful in my career. In our age of technical expertise and professionalism and specialization, it turns out that we may very well have turned away from some of the very deep human needs to connect and especially that connection around innate themes that emerge, you know, when we immerse ourselves into with art. So my guest in this episode of the Sitcast is in fact Dr. Rita Sharon, who truly understands all of this and much, much more. She's a physician, a general internist, 
with a medical degree from Harvard Medical School, and then went on 20 years later to get a PhD in English at Columbia University while practicing full-time in the Department of Medicine there. Her work focuses on the consequences of narrative medicine practice and reflection, and as it turns out, on healthcare team effectiveness as well. She's created a Master of Science in Narrative Medicine at the Graduate Program in Columbia. She's lectured really around the world on this topic, published in the New England Journal of Medicine and Poets Today, an interesting combination if I ever heard of one. In 2018, she was chosen by the National Endowment for the Humanities to deliver the 2018 Jefferson Lecture, which is the highest honor the federal government bestows for distinguished intellectual achievement in the humanities. She's currently working on a new book on the nature of narrative knowledge and why and how stories work. When I started the SIDCast, I wanted to tell people's stories and found that those stories are just so interesting in and of themselves. It turns out that Rita Sharon understands that and has actually created that insight to create a whole new method of healing people, of helping people. She realized that stories that each of us has can actually be a window into better medical treatment, into better mental health. In light of the ongoing coronavirus crisis, I thought having Dr. Sharon as my guest would be especially appropriate and meaningful. We spoke from our respective homes in Hanover and Hampshire and in New York City. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm so happy to have Rita Sharon with us today. Hi, Rita. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Sid. Well, thank you very much. And you're calling in from New York. You're in the city in the age of COVID. I hope you're staying healthy and safe. I'm healthy and safe and so far away from the kind of company that I'm used to. Mm. Mm. We're learning to live alone in a different way. Yes. And a lot of people are getting very tired of it, actually. We are seeing easing of the limitations. It's not because we've been told we can go out more, but simply because people are too tired of being all by themselves. Yeah. And let's hope we don't get that big bump that everybody talks Mm -hmm. about. Well, you have essentially created a field of medicine called narrative medicine, which is very unusual to create a field in anything. And I started reading about you in the Columbia Alumni Magazine. I thought, wow, this woman is really interesting. And then I started Googling around and I said, boy, wouldn't it be great to get you on to the mm-hmm. uh, SIDCast to talk about what you've done in your life and your career. And I want to start with narrative medicine. What is it? Yes. You know, <laughs> when you say, well, I started a field, it really is true <laughs> that we birthed something that didn't before exist. So what it is now is a practice that is practiced within healthcare, doctors, nurses, chaplains, social workers, and also increasingly practiced by lawyers and kindergarten teachers and journalists and prison wardens. So we'll talk about how the ideas of narrative medicine expanded. But when it began, it was a way to help clinicians, health professionals, to understand seriously, deeply, generously what their patients were going through. And we knew we were not very good at that. I'm an internist. I'm a general internist. And then I went and got some training in English, but I start as doctor. So it is both a practice and it is a theory of what is entailed in being ill, what is entailed in understanding the narratives of the ill. So what would it look like in practice? So you use it in your own practice. Can you share an example of how that would kind of play out with a patient? Well, if you've had to go to physicians at all, you know that typically you get to answer yes-no questions 
And maybe the doctor is typing as you speak. And maybe you've already filled out a checklist that you gave to the nurse or someone else before you get to see the doctor. So there's not a whole lot of room for saying, how's it going? And my colleagues and I rebelled against that and realized that we were not serving patients very well. So we have found ways, we've invented ways and then tested them of being able to say, how's it going to a patient? And to have that patient's words and account control what we do. So I can give you lots of examples. You know, a man comes to see me and he had written on his little form that his elbow hurt. That was his reason for coming. And I'd never seen him before, first visit. And he looked worried, he looked sad. So I told him, I will be your doctor. I need to know a lot about your body, your health, and your life. Tell me what you think I should know. And then I stopped talking. Mm-hmm. Tell me what I think I should know. And then you leave it to, mm-hmm. left it to him to say whatever he wanted mm-hmm. to say. And I learned to even roll my chair away from the computer, put my hands in my lap, not write. And this man started by telling me about the death of his father and then the death of his brother. And then the trouble he had raising his kid, who was in his early 20s, in trouble with the law. And he starts to cry. I say, why do you weep? He says, no one ever let me do this before. Do this as in talk and share. And tell me what you want me to know. So that was early when I was kind of discovering the ways of putting these ideas into practice. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the simple ideas into practice that we have since trained any number of medical students and nurses and whatnot. Tell me what you think I should know about you. And then I discovered that if I wrote down what I heard him say and gave that to him the next time I saw him, more amazing things happened. Do you know about medicine, about kind of how Uh, it works on the inside? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the best way to answer that is like everyone else listening, I have been to doctors and the second answer is I have many friends who are physicians. So, but I'm not, certainly not a physician myself. Okay. But we have our own peculiar ways of talking. So if you say you're sweating, I say you're diaphoretic, that kind of thing. So we have our own language of how we talk, but we never use the word died in a paragraph. We usually simply draw a downward pointing arrow. So I kind of experimented with different ways of writing what I was learning from my patients. Not the lingo that goes into the hospital chart, but just of what I was learning Mm -hmm. about this person. And then when they next came, or sometimes I'd send by mail, I'd give that to the patient and say, I think this is what you said last time. Did I get it right? And they'd read that, just a paragraph. I mean, you know, you're busy. You can't, (laughs) you don't have a lot of time. So you write, you know, for a few minutes. And then I'd give it to patients, and time after time, they would read this description. They would fix something I had gotten wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, the appendectomy was, you know, 2017, not 2016. And then they'd often say, we left something out, okay? And what got left out were deaths losses, violence, trauma, the real, you know, stillborn children who were not noted in the family picture. Mm -hmm. And as I, this happened time and time over, 
And so how did it get left out? Was it out of my writing it down or the person's telling me? Mm-hmm. And of course, you don't really know. Mm-hmm. But that then opened vast doors because I was learning. One said, I didn't tell you about the fire, you know. And this was a fire that consumed all her valuable, oh my, collection of butterflies. Mm. Okay, she didn't tell me about the fire. Or I didn't hear when she said, and there was a fire. See? So it became a way to make our account be really kind of a joint account of who's hearing, who's listening, and we both have to be there. Mm-hmm. Now, so those are the kinds of practices that we... I know you've gotten this question before, but doesn't it sure sounds like that's going to take a long time, much longer than you can... Yeah, which is why we need a theory. So the theory of narrative medicine is literary criticism, narratology, which is really the science of how stories work, some aspects of philosophy, like phenomenology, some concepts from psychoanalysis, like intersubjectivity. What I'm trying to say is that it's not a simple, oh, tell me your story, you see. There's sophisticated training that people can go through, it's not all that hard, to teach them how to be far more expert listeners, paying attention to particular words, to metaphors, to allusions, to when the crying starts, to when the silence comes. And like the reader of a good novel, that listener is able to not just put the facts together, but hear the unsaid as well as the said. As you're describing, it sounds almost like a a narrative equivalent to the science of medicine, where you know all the science and you know what the symptoms are, you know what's related to what, and that's what it is, isn't it? It is exactly. And, And that's why the name is narrative medicine, because it's medicine practiced with narrative skill, narrative competence. We have found is rather easy to teach doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains. They're hungry for it. They come to us. They pay a lot of money to take our graduate degree or our certificate program or even our weekly, our weekend workshops. Mm -hmm. So how do you know it works? We know it works because the patients behave differently. This patient would not have told me about his, the death, the sorrow, I'm stopping because I can go in either of two directions. I can tell you some very technical things about the research we've done, and then I can tell you about the kind of research we ultimately will be able to do. I can start with the technical part a little bit. Is that okay? I think that's a good idea. And along the way, I'm curious about how this approach you described, and that first example you shared about someone who came in, I guess, with an elbow soreness Mm -hmm. of some type, how this conversation Mm -hmm. and learning led to some diagnosis and eventual treatment, if in fact that was even the problem. Yes. Well, in his case, he's a good avenue toward the destination. So indeed, he had arthritis. I thought he was depressed. He staunchly refused to see a psychiatrist, although, well, yeah, he didn't want to do that. But I thought he was depressed. I treated his arthritis. He had some heart disease. He had, indeed, as part of his joint pain, a pretty bad back. So I'd see him every three or four months, 
keeping track of the pain, keeping his blood pressure in control, checking in and talking perhaps more than other internists might have mm -hmm. about his nightmares and his kind of worries about things he had done in the past. But then came the time that the back pain really, really got bad to the point that he had some weakness in his legs. Well, this is alarming. This is an emergency. And I had to get him immediately to be seen by the neurosurgeons. We needed to get an MRI. He says, no, I can't do that. They tried once to give me an MRI, and it was so frightening, I said I would never do that. But we need an MRI because, in fact, he needed surgery. And I did this wacky thing. I was in the middle of my office hours. I knew when his MRI was scheduled. I said, I can't be there in the MRI machine room, but you can feel me there. I will be there. And he said, okay. And he got his MRI, and we found something that needed an operation, and he got the operation, and he did fine. Now, that was wacky, and I'm not a kind of, what would you call that? I don't know, hypnotist. <laughs> I'm not a hypnotist. I don't know how to do that. But I so felt my own presence next to him as like a ally that I thought maybe there was a chance that he could feel my presence too. I mean, that's interesting. First of all, this method... You develop a rapport, a connection with someone. So they're, and as it is most physicians, most internists, they're going to be highly trusted the second you walk in just because of reputation. And then you connect it in a human level. And so I could see that he would feel very comforted by this idea. Maybe somebody else would not, there's huge variation, but I could see how there's a clear cut benefit. Developing this rapport, this understanding, mm -hmm. this empathy. Yeah. Yes. And we used to think that that was the gift of a few. You know, that you're born with that right, or right. you're, you know, you're a kind person. I'm not. So, you know, but what we have come to see is that these kinds of skills can actually increase what the student or the physician learns about a patient. I had one medical student who was particularly stiff and particularly distant from patients. We were trying to, you know, help him get a little warmer. So he was in my office. He's seeing patients, seeing my patients, and I'm kind of observing him talk. And I'm sitting right behind him, like over his right shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I could see what was happening. The patient would say something like, I couldn't get to my appointment to the eye doctor because my kid got expelled from grammar school. And the young man would say, well, how's your vision now? And then the patient would try again and say, you know, it's a pretty small apartment, so there's no way I can watch over all their homework. And he would say, you know, maybe there's a study hall at the high school mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I like whispered in his ear from behind his back. And this was a woman who I knew who had a lot of problems. And so she then says, there's no way I can afford that new medicine for the blood pressure because I have to pay alimony. No, it wasn't alimony. It was something about the sun. And so I just reached over and said to him, say, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. And he did. And she told him more. Mm -hmm. And then I had to lean back in and say, and then what happened? And he would say, and then what happened? And we did that a few times. And I saw 
that the young man had never had the reward of a patient saying something serious to him. Mm. See? And you're not going to go out of your way to say, tell me more, unless you have experienced what happens. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of you're a warm person, you're a cold person, but let's make sure you have the experience of authentic conversation. Right. And these are trainable skills, what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I found this kind of general theme to be the case in many walks of life. So I teach and work with leaders on leadership and how to become a more effective leader. I don't teach creativity, but I think about it and try to live that way as much as possible. Well, it turns out, you know, people can get better as a leader, no matter, I I don't know if there's any exceptions, but no matter where you start with, you can get better. Yes, yes. And for creativity, I don't think we're going to become a Picasso overnight, but we sure can be better than we are today if we try, if we want to. And ideally, if there's someone who can help you do that. And so what you're talking about is empathy and well, empathy is really what it is, really understanding people. And it's a teachable skill. Yes. And I'm glad that you mentioned creativity because that is the other core Mm -hmm. of the work. You know, we're writers, we're makers, we're painters, Mm -hmm. we're dancers were musicians. And those parts of what we do enter into our practice. Not because we're performers, I don't mean that, but because we value the imagination and we know that things that we can imagine help us. If I can imagine, what is this guy going through that he comes to me for, you know, the same complaint every other week? What can I imagine? And it's not going to be true. It's not true. But my act of imagining, as this is what you're saying with your leaders, my act of imagining what could it be like to be in his predicament will get you the added curiosity to absorb what he's going to tell you. It won't give you the truth. It'll put you in a position to see. It'll put you in a position to see. And it also means that that person themselves, they can learn those skills and how to think that way a little bit more for themselves, right? Yeah. 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 So I'm really interested in how people end up doing things that are really different and against the grain. And I think this one qualifies. What in the world did the mainstream medical community say to you when you started talking about this and researching this? Well, happily, at the very beginning... I was so off the radar that they didn't pay much mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing my little practice. But then I started, like, going down to the English department, like, once a week. You know, I'm going to take a course in English because I'm interested in how these stories work. And I got a little grant from some foundation. And they said, oh, Rita, don't take a course. Take a master's. So I would kind of disappear from the emergency room and go to my Virginia Woolf seminar. And pretty soon, I was able to get the basics of how stories work, that I then was able to find these ways to practice in different ways. It was when I started getting grants from the NIH and the NEH that they did start paying attention. Mm -hmm. And we very slowly, it was kind of subversive introduction of these ideas and practices into how we were teaching the medical students. You know, you start with a little elective and you see how it goes and you evaluate. But then as we got more visible outside of the university, there was more confidence in what we were doing. So there are always, you know, I give grand rounds in medicine or surgery and Rita, you might have time for that, but I don't have time for that, you know. And there are two things you can do. 
You can say, the better you are at this, the quicker you can do it, which is true. Or you can say, you have 12 minutes with each patient. They say, yeah. And I say, says who? And they say, because we don't like to feel like we're being controlled by anybody else. But indeed, the says who and who is rewarded by your having 12 minutes with every patient has to be asked, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So it has really developed into questions as much about social justice as about anything else. And what is it that people deserve when they're ill and come to their physician? And there's also a social justice question for the physician or the nurse or social worker. You know about the early retirements and the going from the practice of medicine to pharma and the suicides. You've heard about all of that. And the machine of practice today is quite relentless. So these angry doctors, wow, you have time for that, but I don't. What that was was Damn, I want that time. All right. Why do you think, and I know you give credit to a lot of people, you didn't do this alone, but you were the originator. Why do you think it was you? Did you grow up kind of always thinking differently than other people or just naturally empathetic or your parents? Or where does it come from, do you think? Well, I'm going to disagree with your premise. There were a bunch of us at the beginning. I was there at Columbia. There were a number of people interested in what does literature have to say about medicine. There was something called the medical humanities, which we still use that word, starting in the 70s. So there was a bedrock of interest in why aren't the humanities and the arts better integrated into healthcare. So that was flourishing, and it was great to be part of a vanguard. And then at Columbia, I found the oddest bedfellows. You know, it was the philosopher who I first found, who was a phenomenologist. He had done his dissertation on Heidegger and Hegel, and, and he was working in one of the clinical departments. And we found one another. And then one of the readers on my dissertation committee in the English department had an interest in this medical stuff. She was curious about what I was doing. I said, Maura, come on uptown. Medical school, as you recall, is 2.6 miles north of Morningside. Maura, come on uptown. I want you to teach a novel by Faulkner to my doctors. So she comes uptown and teaches Absalom, Absalom. And I kind of like, I don't know, wooed her <laughs> into coming up to the medical school more and more frequently. So it was with other people. And then I had a pediatrician, Sayantani Dasgupta, who was doing some work in illness narratives. So there were like three, four, five of us at Columbia. And then I had some psychoanalysts and, I mean, a lot of people, neurologists, pediatricians. Mm -hmm. But my core group, Craig Irvine, the philosopher, Morris Spiegel, the English professor, Sayantani Dasgupta, the pediatrician, Eric Marcus, he was the head of the Psychoanalytic Institute, David Plant, a novelist, uh, Nellie Herman, who came in, another novelist. And we were the ones in early 2000 to transform this thing which had been like, what is Rita thinking about? into a real field. It was when there was enough, there was a critical mass of persons from the humanities who could really think seriously with me about how do we build this 
into a useful, you use the word feel. And then only because I had to find some money somewhere to pay my research assistant, I said, oh, God, how am I going to pay? And so I rather quickly wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Humanities and got a decent amount of support to pay. Craig Irvine, Morris Spiegel, David. (laughs) And so we'd get together every month two or three times for two or three hours. And that's where it was born. So you said earlier that this way of thinking, this practice is being used in many fields. Mm. Today, I think you said the law, maybe among police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you say a little bit more? How's that happening? So, you know, we have shown along the way that these methods help. So in any number of things, we have shown that when we use narrative medicine teaching, the rate of this emotional exhaustion and burnout among the physicians decreases. And we have shown that when we use these narrative medicine methods in like clinics or hospital units, Mm -hmm. that the doctors, nurses, social workers, psychotherapists find an easier way to be integrated as a team, that it's good for teamwork. Mm -hmm. We didn't know it was going to be good for that, but it turns out Mm -hmm. to be good for that. And then we find out that these are good methods for teaching medical students how to take a complete, it happened to be, obstetrics history. So every time we looked at what do these methods do, we find out that they're actually succeeding in doing something that's otherwise hard to do. And then we start hearing from people outside of healthcare. So, you know, I hear from people who are involved in the exoneration project. And these are lawyers who are representing prisoners on death row. And that they want to know more about what we're doing because they want to know how to better elicit the life stories of these prisoners. Mm -hmm. And then we hear from high school teachers who are teaching, in this case, it was kind of African-American literature in public high school and looking for ways to better kind of connect with students. Social workers, which are kind of part of healthcare but very different from medicine, got very, very involved with our work. They recently, I helped a group of them publish an anthology of, they called it Narrative Practice in Social Work. And it was a group of social workers who had taken our narrative medicine training and then went on to practice social work as they do in public schools or in food stamp agencies or in nursing homes, wherever they are, using these techniques. Hmm. So it's almost like, although I continue to talk about and write about and think about and innovate in narrative medicine, I'm also so inspired Mm -hmm. by the narrativity itself. And like, it's not just about healthcare. So could you share an example of how one of these other fields outside of healthcare, how they're using, I mean, in social work, I guess it's a bit easier because it's somewhat related to the care. I mean, it's about caring people, but something further afield. Well, in the law school, I worked with Jerry Bruner, Jerome Bruner, when he was alive, international eminent psychologist at NYU. And he had teamed up with Amsterdam in the law school, and they were teaching their law students how to collect, to learn about client situations. Lawyers, even more than physicians, are not as tuned into biographical detail. Mm-hmm. 
And now this work is continued by Carol Gilligan, the psychologist who years ago wrote the book In a Different Voice about how young girls learn their ethics and things. But so the law school has been teaching interviewing Mm-hmm. in much the same way that we've been teaching it at the medical school. And it's not like one field can simply borrow directly from the other. That's what I mean. There are these underlying commonalities which are very conceptually pure about what is a story. What happens when a teller tells a story and a listener receives it? How much of the receiver is going to interfere with or unduly interpret what's Mm -hmm. being said, Mm -hmm. how can one keep one's implicit bias out of the story space? Why might that teller be telling this listener anyway? So that brings me straight to my conceptual roots in narrative theory. How does it work? Mm -hmm. How does this telling work? And then you see that is worldwide. So I like the idea that the teller and the the elicitor, <laughs> in a way, they both benefit from this process. I like that. And then as you're also describing, and this is true for medicine, and the legal example really made me think about it. It's kind of like inductive versus deductive research. Yes. Right. And is it accurate to say that most physicians, they take a deductive approach. They have a hypothesis one after another after another. They ask the question. They try to disprove it or prove it. And inductive means you start... I mean, the story forms, and then you figure out what it is. Exactly. Most disciplines have this dichotomy. You know, are you algorithmically going through something? Okay, it's chest pain. Is it chest pain from the heart or the lungs or the stomach? And you go down and you fork and you follow the forks. And that's a kind of diagnostic Mm -hmm. listening, which can get in your way if you're also at the same time trying to take in the quality of experience and not necessarily the diagnostic implications of the experience. And that's true in many, many fields. I gave a presentation two days ago to the child psychiatry program, and I was saying as an internist, I have to do these two things at once, and they're very competing. And the diagnostic situation is congestive failure or is it asthma? versus what is this man afraid of? And I said, it's probably the same for you in child psychiatry, that you have to decide, is this autism? Is this bipolar disease? And you have to take in, you know, what are they going through? And it was a helpful way for them to think through why it was so hard Mm -hmm. for their, especially young trainees, to be there with very sick, you know, young people referred by other physicians looking for an answer, what's wrong with my child? And that child psychiatrist had also, and it's kind of going back and forth. You don't actually do them at the same time. You can't. You go back and forth, but you can get very facile. You can get very nimble at going back and forth. And it was helpful to them, I think, to at least examine that Resonance. It's a resonance. A lot of these examples are getting at diagnosis. Mm The physicians want to diagnose. The lawyer wants to understand what's really going on. Have the same techniques been used for treatment, for prescriptive work, in addition to diagnostic? Well, yeah. We have a, he's a graduate student, PhD student now in Oslo, doing really randomized controlled trials Mm -hmm. 
on narrative medicine interventions compared to electric pulse interventions and some kind of breathing techniques for patients with chronic undiagnosable pain. How would that work? I mean, I... Well, that patients who have who suffer from severe pain, which doesn't have a kind of organic basis, mm-hmm. and the only kind of treatment that might be offered to them are treatments that down the road will be dangerous for them mm-hmm. in terms of opiates. Mm-hmm. So everybody's been looking for non-pharmacologic ways of treating chronic pain. So this one study, one thing was some kind of vagal nerve block, and then the other one was this breathing techniques, new breathing practices. And then the third intervention was for these patients to come once a week and read and write together. And so that's the treatment, really. Yeah. And yeah. the test is, is that going to make a difference? That yeah. can help them get better. Yeah. alleviate their pain, basically. Exactly. Well, I don't know the uh, science of it, but I know when people get together, read and write, it's a magical thing. (laughs) It really is. Is that what... Say more. I mean, it's magical in... Well, so I've been on both sides of that. Years ago, I taught 8, 10, 12-year-old, 11-year-old girls in an after-school program, writing. Yeah. And first, you got to feed them when they come in after school, of course. And then they all have their books and they start writing. Mm-hmm. And I got so much out of it. They did, hopefully yeah. a lot, but I got a lot out of it. And to just see that process, see them do mm-hmm. that, see them sharing, see, much, see how they're actually engaging in the writing in the same way that a group of kids might engage in a hockey game yes. or a soccer game. Yes, yes. It was the same thing. Strenuous. It was strenuous and it seemed to be just as enjoyable. And everyone was a player. It's not like in a sports game, there are better players that that are the stars. Well, there could be better writers than others, but everybody was engaged. And And so, yeah, and they, and so what happened is really they got, they taught each other. Yes. Uh, That's what happened. Well, exactly. So look, when COVID started, when we're in a pandemic, all of a sudden, the stress and the suffering was extraordinary among the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses. I mean, so many of them got sick. There wasn't enough equipment at the beginning to protect them. I mean, it was chaos. But the so we would ask people, what's the worst part of this? And they would say two things. I'm worried about the health of my family and the social isolation is killing me. So I said, I remember, I said, look, there are things that we know how to do in narrative medicine that are going to help people. We simply know how to get people together, how to engage them in collective communal activities toward creativity, and this will help the social isolation, and this will nourish the individuals. So let's do it. So within 10 days, my crew, my team, their amazing team at Columbia, Cindy Smollett, who's our educational technologist, Joe Eveld, who's our writing teacher, Renee Sangden, who's our administrator. And literally within 10 days, we hosted these Zoom sessions, like, just come, just come. Here's a registration, just come. We can fit up to 100 people at a time. And right from the beginning, we had 80, 90, 100 people in these sessions. And what did we do? so simple. One of us would have chosen something, a poem, a painting, a page from a graphic novel, Mm -hmm. a little piece of music, whatever. And we would put that up and they would read this poem together or they would look at this painting together and they would talk about it. And different people from the Zoom session would have a chance to say, 
you know, look at that third line in Wallace Stevens' poetry. What, and or how come that, what is that guy doing on the roof in the back of that painting? Just like conversation, and you'd get many, many voices. And then the facilitator would give a, a writing prompt. You know what a writing prompt is. That's what we used to do with the kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, write about a time when you were stuck at a fork in the road. Write about a time when whatever. And as long as the prompt is expansive and not prescriptive, off they go. So you could see on the Zoom screen, everybody's bending down kind of (laughs) writing. And then many people have a chance to read aloud what they've written. And if they don't, they put it in the blog and other people can read it later. Well, this thing really took off. And we had to do it three and four times a week. And people kept coming back the same people. We had people from Poland, Morocco, Australia, China. We're now doing it in Polish, in Greek. We just started it in Italian. There are other languages lined up. Mm -hmm. What does this tell us? I mean, it's so simple. It's the exercise of creativity. It's the company of others who are, in effect, your readers. And it's not about COVID. I don't think we had any texts that were actually about COVID. But any well-written poetry or prose or visual artwork is going to ring the themes of time and place and loss and growth So I don't know if we'll ever stop. We're now trying to enrich this with even more using these marvelous digital platforms. We want to get people like into small groups so they can actually keep creating things and Mm -hmm. create them together like your girls so that they have actual, that they really can be makers. See, and there's no end. Everybody's having to teach now on Zoom. All of the teachers, no more classrooms, we're all teaching on Zoom. Well, thank God we're at a time when we've got these marvelous digital affordances that can get people far away from one another together. Right. So this is really fantastic because for all sorts of reasons, including the idea that I might want to do exactly the same type of thing with my students when they start coming and they're not coming physically, mostly they'll be, they're all over the world and as a bonding and early experience to do. But it also reminds me a little bit of, there are a bunch of museums now that do something called learning to look or some name like that. You're familiar with that. The Hood Museum here in Hanover has done that. So I've run a bunch of executive programs. So And I could tell you, when we put that on the calendar, they're looking at it and saying, this is, what's that about? We're going to go to the museum. We're going to stare at a painting. For a half hour? Longer even. And you know the answer. It's always near the top, if not the top rated activity over their two weeks together. They can't believe what their experience was like. They want to do it again. And they're sorry that the time flew by so fast. That's right. Exactly. What is it? Is it the beauty? What is it? What is it? What is it? People interacting together. around creativity, which is so rare in life, unless you're in the creative fields as your career. I mean, there must be a real longing for people to engage in this. And it's uh, it's almost like it's been covered up in our society of growth and advancement and wealth and and hitting your goals and all those other wonderful things. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, many writers say that literature is serious play. Hmm, That's a great expression. It is a form of freedom. 
You know, it was the psychoanalyst who really struck me some time ago by saying what psychoanalysis is for is freedom. And I think what art is for is freedom. I think that's something that we're going to want to do more of. I think you're seeing the tremendous interest in what you've just started to do in our COVID era, which I think as we continue, there'll be more and more concerns around problems with mental health around this because, oh yes. you know, oh, we're yes. summertime now and we're free and we're out and maybe yeah. miraculously there won't be a second wave. Let's yeah. pray, right? I know, but I know. most experts I know. say something quite different and to go back through it again, no. my goodness, that's going to yeah. be hard. But we also might have a chance at looking at some of the things that have been exposed as broken and the fact that the race and class disparities are so vast. Maybe we have a chance to really examine some of these dividing lines, do you think? It's under the category of uh, hopeful uh, thinking, unfortunately. Yeah. It's been pretty stunning. And if anyone ever doubted, I'm sure many people never doubted, but many others had no idea. And you see you see the data. And you know, the other thing, the work that you do that makes me think about it. So, you know, at Dartmouth College, it's we have three professional schools, including where I am in the business mm-hmm. school, but it's really a liberal arts school, right? Yeah. And the liberal arts have been under attack for a long time from many groups, including a lot of parents who say, sure. what's my kid going to do if they're studying, you know, Tennessee Williams all day? Right. What are they going to get out of that? Yeah, it's interesting and it's fun. And, but I think your work and the broader movement that's going on mm-hmm. is really highlighting how it is so essential, mm. almost a prerequisite. Yeah. I mean, a co-requisite maybe is a better word for accomplishing whatever you wish to do in your kind of professional career. Yeah. It's a real eye opener, I think. And I'm not so sure that most liberal arts schools fully appreciate or recognize what they've got. I think they've been under attack for so long yeah. that they're so defensive. I know. I know. And we have a great opportunity because now the medical educators are getting to know very well the literary scholars and the fine arts faculty and the music faculty at their institutions. Because as long as the medical doctors don't think that they can do it all by themselves and know how to find the right person in the English department who's really interested in doing this. And I mean, we've got money to bring together doctoral candidates in the humanities, philosophy, English, history, bring them up to the medical school, get some of our young clinicians, and together have these future faculty learn how to teach this, how to teach the humanities in healthcare. And the English people can't do it by themselves, and the pediatricians can't do it by themselves. But they're going to learn the resonance between the two. So I'm very hopeful that we can help cross some of these bridges. Right. And I think when we get to the other side of this epidemic, this pandemic, these practices that you're doing and others are doing, I think their worth has been recognized. I don't think we're going to just forget about it. I just don't really think so. I think actually what we're going to see is more and more people. Look at how much creativity is flowing everywhere during this time when there's no concerts you can go to, you can't go to a theater. There's so many things you can't do. And then you see professionals and amateurs. If I started streaming everything I hear about, I know. Uh, 24 hours a day is not nearly enough. One after another, they're fantastic. I know. Whenever I feel like it, I can have Angela Hewitt playing from the well-tempered clavier. Anytime I want. There she is. It is amazing. Rita, we're almost out of time. Maybe I'll ask you one last question, a question I'd like to ask about advice. Mm. And it's a particular 
perspective on advice, which is advice to yourself. And imagine that you can go back in time to when you were 21 years old, right early in your career. And if there's something that you've learned, and from our conversation, people know there are many things you've learned over your career. But if there's one thing you want to draw on that you would like to lean over to the 21-year-old, kind of going back in time, 21-year-old Rita Sharon and say, there's one thing you want to do or think about or understand, this would be it. What would you what would you say? What would you think that would be? I would encourage that 20-year-old to pay even more attention to the music and the piano and the creative writing. That 21-year-old kind of went pretty lockstep into medical school. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think she would have been farther along with more of the creative practice, mm -hmm. not just studying about the creativity, but actually mm -hmm. creating. Yeah. Do you think that if you start, not in you personally, but in general, if you start that way, it actually will lead to a lifetime where this would be creativity more integrated? I mean, I could see that, but I'm also thinking the opposite, which is you kind of know what you're missing at some point because you're, again, it's not yeah. you personally, but you're yeah. so career oriented. Certainly that's true for my students and they are just taken off and doing what they want to do. And later they discover, and this is actually very common. I moderated a panel not that long ago of alumni that had graduated in the seventies and they were all in their sixties now. Yeah. And they almost all of them had very successful careers in the ways that we usually think about that. And they were all giving back in some way. One yes. was a high school teacher, one was it this, one was it that. And they were loving it. They were talking about how great their life was. They loved it so much. And I couldn't help but ask them, you know, do you think, you know, why didn't you do this before? And they know the answer. The yeah. answer is they're working 24-7 yeah. to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. That's right. That's right. We get these medical students. I get them for a month on an elective, of a narrative medicine elective. And they're reading, they're writing, they're making comics, they're learning how to listen to Beethoven string quartets. And they say, I didn't know I could do this. <laughs> I didn't know this would count. Do you really mean I can read and write poetry as part of my medical... And they're like reclaiming these things they thought they had had to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I say, no, 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 this belongs. This is what will make you a powerful doctor. Yeah, that's the point. It's not an either or, is it? The either or is where you have to make choices and prioritize. Yeah. And we know which way that goes when you are building that career and you're very, no. you're very ambitious. It's and, it's not either or. Yeah. And this has been great. Really enjoyed this. Con and I learned a lot. Oh. I, I feel very fortunate to be doing these podcasts with so many interesting people. I learned a ton today. Well, and so did I, because you're the kind of interviewer who follows and goes deeper and knows what to be curious about. So it was a thrill for me, too. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Be well, and I'll definitely be in touch to okay. learn a little bit more, because I'd like to bring some of this to my MBA students. Oh, good. Yes, absolutely. Rita Sharon, thank good. you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. 
The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.